Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. I just used this text for the first message I preached back in the fall, but it will be quite different today, uh, using a different piece of it. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we do pray that you would uh, encourage us and motivate us and uh, fill our will with a desire to seek you. We uh, bow before you, Lord, and acknowledge that you are our master, you are our Lord, you are our king and our sovereign, and yet you also have adopted us into your family, and so we are also your children. We thank you, Father, for this precious uh, truth, and we ask you now to have your Holy Spirit speak to uh, your children and uh, bring us, draw us closely to your throne. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Last week, we talked about knowing God, and we really asked only one question, and that is, how can we better understand and know God? And so, in a sense, that sermon was really one-dimensional. There was one main aspect to it. And earlier this week, Gary and I had lunch, and by that time, we'd already selected the text and the title here today. And as we were parting, uh, he asked if I had the the topic and text selected for next week. And I said, no, but I'm thinking about something. And he suggested the same thing I was thinking. And so uh, I thought, well, that's good. That's what we should do. And so uh, today's title is Pleasing God, and next week's title is Serving God. And so it is kind of a natural progression. So next week's message, Serving God, is kind of two-dimensional because there are really two ways in which we serve God. We serve God directly and we serve God indirectly by serving his church, by serving his people. Today's message on pleasing God is in a way, I believe, three-dimensional. It's three aspects to it. We have the same two that are true of serving. We please God by pleasing him directly. We please him indirectly by serving his church, by pleasing his church. And there's another aspect of the pleasure of God that I wanted to talk about, and that is that it's not about us directly pleasing him, but him being pleased in doing stuff for us. And so that's a third aspect of pleasing God that I want to talk about today. So it's kind of one, two, three, or one, three, two, I guess. And uh, I want to start at verse six, the last verse that I'd read. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Faith is 
an essential element of pleasing God. And I was looking for a way to make this real to us by uh, speaking of catalysts that are critical to certain scientific experiments. But after a few minutes of looking around, I couldn't find anything that popped into my, my uh, search return results, and so I didn't. But I believe all of us are, have been familiar with the fact that a catalyst is something that is absolutely critical to a chemical uh, formula. You can omit one thing and nothing happens, and that is faith. Faith is absolutely essential. It's essential to everything that we do for God as believers, and those that lack it can do nothing to please God. And that's shocking, really, to modern ears, because we think, what about people that are doing such wonderful things for other people? They're serving others. They're pouring out their lives for others. And yet we know that God's Word tells us that that is meaningless to God. It means nothing relative to their hearts towards Him. And that is everything. So now we come to God with faith, and it has a positive meaning with God. When you come with faith, it means something to God. And faith is defined in verse 1, and I love this definition. Uh, we talked about it six months ago when I used this text. And so faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so faith is substantive. It is substance. The substance of things hoped for. So it is faith that is what you see, what is tangible, what you can get a sense of that is a truth about something that you can't see, that is hoped for. Now, this is uh, biblical hope. Biblical hope is different than the hope that we now use in our culture. Biblical hope is a sure hope. Biblical hope is confidence. So we use the term hope loosely now. And we hope this will happen. We hope that will happen. That isn't what biblical hope is. Biblical hope means it is going to happen. Biblical hope is real. And it is faith that gives the reality, the tangible reality to it now. It is the promise, the down payment that you have something that is real. So faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, we're all familiar with evidence. I mean, who hasn't watched a show where they've drawn evidence in? And so evidence is something related to guilt or innocence, right? Evidence is something related to real or fiction, truth or falsehood. So evidence, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Now, I've rephrased this a bit. I've kind of pulled this together and, and given this definition. Faith is evidence of a confident belief in the invisible God. Faith is evidence of a confident belief in the invisible God. It could also be this. Faith is evidence of confident belief in the invisible God or something that he will do, something that he has promised, something that is real, that is tangible. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you're probably familiar with the reference, you know, for we have been saved by grace and it is not of yourselves. You have been saved by grace through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest no one should boast. So see, faith is a gift. 
Faith is a tangible gift, but it is a gift that is slippery, isn't it? We don't always know when we have faith in our hands. We think we do, and then we get a sense of really how weak we are, and we realize how little faith we had in this or that, in God perhaps himself. So see, though it is tangible, it is slippery. And so you are always to be growing in faith, questioning your faith, solidifying your faith, going to God for more because it is a gift of his. So we seek it from him. We get it from him. We don't always hang on to it. It's just like sand slips through our fingers. We don't know how to hang on to it as we should. We don't do what it is necessary to hang on to it as we should. The second part of verse 6 is, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So this is a two-parter. The faithful are confident in God's existence. They are confident also in his goodness because he will do as he promised. He will help us as he promised now, fools deny the existence of God. Psalms 14, 1 and 53, 1 both say the same thing. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So we know that it is foolish to deny the existence of God. We live in a time and in a culture that is very secular, that is oriented towards a naturalistic, theistic, perhaps, belief in evolutionary theory but it has nothing to do with the God of Scripture. Yet when people are asked that one question, is there a God, 90% in this country still say yes. It must drive the secular evolutionists crazy to see the answer to that question because they work very hard to eliminate the possibility that there is a God. They've eliminated it in our schools. They've eliminated it in our government, but they haven't eliminated it from people's minds, from their spirits, because God created you with it, and you're foolish to deny it. Now, Romans 1 tells, though, that there are also those that deny God, but there it doesn't really say that they're denying his existence. They just deny anything, any role in their world. They deny his truth. They deny his design, his pattern. And so these people are at a loss then to turn to this God, right? The ones who are fools who deny him and the ones that, who know that they are in rebellion against him. So why do people come to God? And it's not just believers that come to God. Everybody goes to God. And I have some uh, things to share with you about that. But so why do we go to God? What is it that we get from God? In what way does he uh, add value to our lives? Viewing God, belief in God, uh, service to God as a value proposition. You know, God has made us who we are. We are allowed to think in terms of this. What is it? Why is it that God draws me close to himself? In uh, the Psalms, I have four references, and I'll just read them all right here. Psalm 50, verse 15. 
Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So God delivers us, and we then glorify him for having delivered us. Psalm 86, 5. You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. So God is abundant in mercy, and yet we call upon him to have him administer mercy in our lives. Now, he might be merciful on us and give us mercy even if we don't ask, but that's presumptuous of us. We are commanded to ask him for mercy. Psalm 91.15, he shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. So not only does God deliver us, he also honors us. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. So these are just four references. Of course, Psalms is full of them. And yet these are commands that God gives us to call upon him to take hold of him by faith. Now, it is not just the faithful that do this from time to time, though. These people that don't really want God in their lives, yet at times reach out to God in desperation. Friday, I was telling Tabitha earlier in the week that for preparation for this, I wanted to watch the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And... Now, if you've seen that movie without playing it through a clear play, uh, you know they take the Lord's name in vain a lot. It's rather offensive. And so I watched it uh, yesterday. We watched it, I think, Friday night. And uh, it's just, they, they, they're just so many. Uh, you really need to watch it with something that would inhibit that. Uh, but yet, I'd watched it long ago when it uh, came out. I remember Ken Cope just laughing hysterically about it here in the worship service when he was trying to tell me about that scene where the chain gang jumps up on the car and then they all fall out at the beginning because one of them didn't make it into the car and they're all chained together. But uh, the reason I bring it up is these three convicts are all chained together and they go throughout the movie all together even though they get the chains off fairly early. But one of them, the leader is a very, very fast talker, very shady character. And at the end of the movie, they have already been pardoned by the governor for their crimes, but the posse that was after them hasn't gotten the word about that. And so the posse ends up catching them, and they've got these three men lined up before nooses. And the main guy, who's always this kind of scientific type of guy and this fast talker, smooth smoothie, he says this as he's dropping to his knees. O oh Lord, please look down and recognize us poor sinners. Please, Lord, I just want to see my daughters again. I know I've been guilty of pride and sharp dealing. I'm sorry that I turned my back on you. Forgive me. We're helpless, Lord. For uh, Pete and Delmar's sakes, help us, please. At that moment, as he's on his knees, these trickles of water come. And then, in a few seconds, he stands up, and this big wave washes over all of them because this whole valley is being flooded. Now, you watch a minute of slow motion, everything floating around in this flood water, and now you have these three convicts pop up out of the water, and Delmar, now the other two guys are dumb as bricks, 
and uh, George Clooney, his character, Everett, he's pretty sharp. But Delmar pops up, a miracle! It was a miracle! Everett says, Delmar, don't be ignorant. I told you there was flood in this valley. Delmar, no, that ain't it. And the other fellow, Pete, he says, we prayed to God and he pitied us. And then Everett says, well, it never fails. Once again, you two hayseeds are showing how much you want for intellect. There's a perfectly scientific explanation for just what happened. And then he goes on and on about explaining it away. But he was the one that was on his knees praying to God very sincerely that he would be saved from being hung. And yet here he is a minute later taking all of that credit that should go to God away and saying, oh, there's a perfectly scientific explanation for it. You know, this is so common in our culture that there's a phrase for it. And the phrase is foxhole conversions or foxhole prayers. In other words, uh, when soldiers are under the gun in the field and they've got the bombs falling, they want to be safe in a foxhole. A foxhole is where you're safe from the shrapnel that's flying above ground. And so you, as rapidly as you can, you get to where you're going to be bivouacking and you dig a hole and you then lay down in that hole because that is much, much safer than being above the ground. So while you're in the foxhole and the bombs are falling, you're praying to God. Unless you're a fool. So that's fiction though, right? Does that really happen? In this book, O Brother, or Art Thou, or the movie, it's just fiction. But five years ago, and I was shocked at how long ago this was, uh, in a communion meditation, I had been reading a book written by Sidney Poitier called The Measure of a Man, and I cited a similar instance to you. And early in the book, he'd given his views of God. Now, he had grown up in a syncretistic home in Jamaica. Uh, his parents would go to the Anglican church most every weekends, but they would also pra practice voodoo in their homes. And that was what a lot of people in Jamaica did. The Anglican church was just the place to go hang out, I guess, on the weekend, and then you'd still practice your native uh, pagan religion. So he grew up, and of course he became very famous, and at this point he's you know, probably in his midlife, but he's explaining how he's writing all this and how, he's, how his belief in God is this and that. And he's kind of got this warped, uh, kind of pantheistic view of God, uh, that God is kind of like a force, that type of thing, that everything is a part of God. So that was when he's sitting in his den describing his belief about God. But what did he think about God when he was in a riptide in Acapulco? Lord Jesus, save me. God, I don't want to die. Save me. I mean, he said that over and over again when the water is tossing him back out into the ocean. He and his Jewish friend that were there, they're both calling out for God to save them. And God does. He said that Every, about every eight seconds, a wave would just come in and crush them and roll them around and then suck them back out. And he knew they were going to die because their strength was at an end. But he knew there was one more wave coming, and they wanted to get up on land, and that one threw them both up on land, and they crawled up to their wives who were oblivious. They'd been yelling at them while they were stuck out in the water, and they hadn't heard them. But 20 minutes later, they're drinking drinks and laughing about their near-death experience. And then 30 years later, he writes this book and explains how he has no faith in the God of the Bible. And so people 
are just filled with this. They know there's a God. They know he exists. They've even grown up in Christianity, but they have rejected him, knowingly rejected him. They do not have faith. When you hear Everett in O Brother, Where Art Thou? He sounds very sincere. And the definition for faith is in God acting is, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Everett believed that God existed, sincerely did. That he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Everett was diligently seeking him. But what's missing? What's missing? There isn't true faith there. Because, see, while they wanted to be saved, while they knew God existed, while they were diligently calling out for his aid, they lacked faith. Because faith, a component of it, is that I'm entrusting myself to you, to my Savior who's helping me. And they did not have that trust. They had never surrendered to God. So their faith was a false faith. It was fake. Now, as I prepared for this message, I found an article series, and it was actually very good. It was called The Pleasing and Displeasing of God, and it was written by a man named I. Gordon. And he had this right at the beginning of the first article. Listen critically to this. Tell me if you believe this. Tell me if this makes sense. Many in the world, in all religions, desire to please God, but their zeal and commitment are not accepted, for they are not based upon the solid truth that God has revealed in his word. So, I accept this, but I think it's weak. I think it's very weak. There is one word that needs to be replaced with a better word a word that actually makes it then, I believe, 100% true. Many in the world and all religions desire to please God. No. Many in the world and all religions desire to appease God. But their zeal and commitment are not accepted for they are not based upon the solid truth that God has revealed in his word. The difference between wanting to please God and wanting to appease God is fundamental. When you are trying to please God, you want what he wants. You love him. You're trying to do something for him. When you're trying to appease God, you're trying to escape some judgment, some penalty, something. When you're trying to appease God, you just want your way. How can I manipulate this God into getting my way? That is what people do. They're not really trying to please God. They're trying to only merely appease him because that is who they believe God is. They have eviscerated the God of the Bible, the loving, merciful God of the Bible, just but merciful to all who call upon him. Pleasure, wanting to please God, involves love. You can't want to please somebody that you don't have affection for because you resent it. You don't want to please them. I believe that most of us view pleasing God as hopefully a beneficial side effect of how we live. I don't know that most of us consciously 
decide to please God by what we do, by how we live. But yet that should be something that's on our minds and hearts. We should want to please God. And I was surprised when I started going through Scripture just how many verses speak of us having the potential to please God. And yet, I can't say that I'd ever made it a focus of my life. I'm familiar with knowing, loving, the intimacy, the relationship with God. I'm familiar with serving these ways of conforming Christianity and my conduct to Christianity. And I'm sure there's pleasing of God in there. But it's just a side effect. It's not my goal. My goal, I believe, for the most part in my life has been to please myself. Maybe to please my wife and family. Maybe at times to please others, but rarely. And so this has really gotten me thinking that this is something that many of us, I believe, lack. Now, if you don't, if you've really wrestled with wanting your life to please the Lord, then I commend you. But I admit that I'd not given it a whole lot of thought. I just really assumed that if I do these things, that God must be happy. He hasn't smacked me down today or whatever I judge God's happiness by. But yet Scripture can be very clear as to how we are to please God. Paul told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2.4. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul wrote that to Timothy. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So Paul is telling Timothy, you are a soldier, young man, and you are not to get overly involved with the issues of this world. Always keep your eyes focused. Always keep focused on God, that you may please him please him. Now, who knows here that this verse about broke Elizabeth Elliot's heart? Anybody know the story behind that? She was a student at Wheaton, and she looked around at all the young men there at Wheaton, and there was really no one that she was interested in except this one man, Jim Elliot. This one man displayed such maturity and godliness that she was very impressed. And he also happened to be handsome. So she was the only man, or he was the only man that she had eyes for. And, you know, she kind of was able to sometimes be in like the same Bible study or the same class or whatever. So they'd had some very, very modest communication up to this point. And then they got their yearbooks. Their college yearbooks. And she couldn't wait to get Jim to sign her yearbook. So she went to him and said, Jim, would you sign my yearbook? He signed it. And so she's thinking, okay, this is meaningful. You know, this is a yearbook that he should have written something if he does care at all for me. She had no reason to believe that, but she reads, she goes to his picture and finds that he signed 2 Timothy 2 4. And she said, You can bet how quickly I got back to my dorm room to get my Bible to look up 2 Timothy 2.4. And she read this. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. 
Jim knew exactly what was on her heart, and he, in a very subtle but very blunt way, told her, sorry, no can do. This isn't progressing. And so he was dead set on becoming a missionary, and he knew where he was going. He was going to this, this very vicious tribe down in South America, Central America, and he didn't think a wife would be wise to take along on such a trip. And so he had been dead set against marriage. He was not at school looking for a wife at all. And yet things changed over the next few years. You know, it began to be apparent that with the missionary organization he was going with, it could work out to where his wife could come with him. And so they ended up getting married a few years later. But uh, it's just a beautiful illustration of him understanding that he wanted, most of all, to please God with his life. He had already decided exactly how he was going to do that. He was a pretty uh, disciplined and headstrong young guy. So now, how can we please God by our conduct? Now, originally, I had, I had character and conduct split apart, but they're so integrated. It was really hard to keep them apart, and I finally decided I'm not going to bother. And so this is really about both character and conduct. How can we please God by our conduct? I have uh, five references I'm going to read to you. And I want you to look for a common thread in this. They're all from the Old Testament. Proverbs 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Psalm 69, verses 30 and 31. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull. 1 Samuel 15:22 Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Hosea 6:6 6, 6. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. You do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Did anybody detect the single thread that connects all five of those verses? It has to do with sacrifice, animal sacrifice. The sacrifice of the wicked, an ox or a bull, burnt offerings and sacrifices, better than sacrifice, fat of rams, not sacrifice, burnt offerings, desire sacrifice, burnt offerings. In Psalm 51, David writes, you do not desire sacrifice. Now, who instituted animal sacrifice? God. And yet David could say, you do not desire sacrifice. In other words, as compared to broken spirit, broken and contrite heart, David is saying, you don't even want animal sacrifice in comparison to those. So see, all of these, and all of these are from the Old Testament, of course. And then every good act that I referenced, prayer, praise, song, thanksgiving, obedience, heeding, obeying, knowledge of God, mercy, broken spirit, all of this is contrasted with animal sacrifice. It's the same thing. We have all of these other things that orbit around it, but the writers of the Old Testament are criticizing their obsession with believing sacrifice of animals is enough. What's funny, though, is this. 
Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So see, now that animal sacrifice is no longer required, now we see we're to sacrifice. And the obvious truth is that that was expected all along. In the Old Testament, it was too easy to just think the animal is enough. I can mail it in. I just go, I'm a wealthy person, I just go get this bull, I get three or four bulls, I get a bunch of cows, I get the goats. There, there you go, God, don't you love me now? It was just so common for people to fall into that way of thinking. And so what I want to ask you then is what is the trap for us today? What is it that is our sacrifice today as contrasted with the true sacrifice, the self-sacrifice that God expects of us? What is it that we can fall prey to just like the people that were offering those animals? What can we mail in? You thinking about it? You look like you're very thoughtful. You're not just vacantly staring at me. So see, all of the trappings of what I'm going to share with you for the rest of this service and next week are the things that we can insulate ourselves from true sacrifice by doing. Serving others, getting busy, doing this, doing that. There are many things you can do to look busy, to look holy, to look like you're serving God, yet it's not touching your heart. You're not really sacrificing. You're just filling your days with busy work. So see, all of these criticisms of animal sacrifice can easily and should easily be applied against us today, the way we live. We dare not mail it in. You are expected to sacrifice for God, to please Him. If you're not thinking that way in terms of self-sacrifice, then you're not thinking biblically. You're not aware of what the major flaw in the Old Testament ceremonial system was, and that was where people felt they could mail it in, they don't have to get plugged in. I want to give an example of this, and, and it's hit me, and I believe it's probably hit many of you. At times, you will find yourself praying, reading, thinking, meditating. How, God, do you want me to live? What, what do I need to do differently? And he'll bring to mind the most innocent of little sins that you practice. And you think to yourself, why, that's trivial. Why would I bother with that? That's such a petty thing. I would think that God will want me to work on this, this huge, big rock of sin in my life. And so you just set that aside. God can't possibly want me to do something that trivial. But yet, he'll bring it up again and again because it's not trivial. We assume it away. We think it's down in the noise level. I, I'm used to using Pareto analyses. That's where you say, okay, 60% this, 40% this, 30% this. Let's work on the 60. Okay, that's the big one. Let's tackle that. But sometimes God will put it on your heart 
to work on the smallest of sins you think you have. And so you discard that. You think, well, that's silly. That's a waste of time. Some hardened sin that is in your life that you indulge in, that you think isn't that big of a deal, and yet God comes back to it and just says, no, no, that's it. That's what I want you to work on. That's important for your growth as a Christian. God knows better than us. We ought not think in terms of our sins being from worst to most acceptable in God's eyes. And if you are open to God and asking him, God, please open my eyes, he does things like that. And then take his word for it, work on it, deal with it, and he will bless you. See, that's the thing. We think we have to do this to get blessed. But he just says, no, just do that. That is so trivial. Yet by this, you'll tell me that you're my child, that you want to live in obedience to me, that you want to please me. And what's more is it is not a big deal. But sometimes our pride gets involved over such a tiny thing as this. And then we know God knows a lot more than us. It's not just a little thing to us, is it? It's bigger. It's bigger than we pretended it was. And God knows that. God knows our heart. He knows how we're viewing that. We know that God is most pleased in the sacrifice of Christ. By comparison to what we can do for God, we fall short. I hate to share that news with you. But he is very well pleased in the sacrifice of Christ. He said this at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then at the transfiguration, Peter was running his mouth saying, we're going to build booze for you. And while Peter was still speaking, God again spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And what an open rebuke that was to Peter to stop running his mouth. I mean, Peter later in 2 Peter uh, 1, 16 to 19 said this. Let me see. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 19. Oh, I think I got the wrong reference. But he was speaking of this and he cited it. And he was reliving it, you could tell. But he was looking back on it with such treasured memories. But yet this was a rebuke. He was rebuked. And yet he treasured that rebuke. It was one of the things that he most treasured from his time with Christ. When he was rebuked by the Father from heaven. Now, when we read that verse in Matthew about the voice from heaven, you know what we are quick to do? It's a proof text for the Trinity. You have the, the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ in the form of a dove. You have the voice booming from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then it's done. That verse has been dealt with. That verse is a great proof text for the Trinity. And yet we miss the main point. The point is that God is speaking from heaven in this time. It's the only... The first time, and there's only going to be one more time, and yet what he's conveying to us is acceptance of his son, praise of his son. So see, when we please God, 
as Jesus pleased God. That is praise. God is praising us for having pleased him. Isn't that something that we want to do? Isaiah wrote that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And I talked about that a while ago when I did the community meditation series. It is one of the most difficult verses to really understand, uh, to accept that God was pleased to bruise Christ. But see, you have to realize that God's pleasure was, in many ways, it revolved around Christ's obedience to his command, adherence to his plan, but it also was for the goal. He was pleased that Christ was progressing the plan towards this goal of redemption. So Christ was doing what it is that we are to do in his place on this earth. He was sacrificing himself. So I was talking to Larry before the service, and we were commenting about Colossians 1, and there's a verse there that talks about uh, us filling up in our bodies the punishment that was intended for Jesus. And so, see, that is a role that the church has on this earth, to continue to bear abuse for the name of Christ. This, of course, in no way adds value to the sacrifice of Christ, but Christ's body, physical body, is gone. And his spiritual body, us, his children, remains behind. And God has determined that we will continue to suffer in the place of Christ's physical body on the earth as a part of that ongoing abuse that the world is heaping upon Christ. They couldn't get enough of him here, and so they keep beating us. And yet this is good. This is pleasing to the Lord. You have to realize that that's shocking, but yet you have to study it and work it into your heart until you understand what it means. It is God being pleased that we are sacrificing ourselves for others. So now God is pleased by what he does for us as well. So in other words, this is that third part that I mentioned. I'm not going to talk about what we do for God to please him because so much of it also involves us serving others. And by that I mean what we do for others that is directly pleasing or serving God. I'm going to talk about that next week. But let me read a few things. And actually, uh, I was pretty impressed. Gary read two of these earlier during his communion meditation. Uh, First, I'll read from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And there you see that it was according to the good pleasure of his will. So again, it gave God pleasure to do this, to have us be predestined to the adoption as sons. And then in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, 
I will destroy the wise, the wisdom of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So see, when we get up and preach, we are uh, indulging God in this foolish method to reach out to people with the truth and have this be the means by which God saves people. But yet, in the eyes of the world, it's foolishness, it's silliness. But God uses it to reach out and touch people and save people and draw them into his kingdom. Now, in Hebrews, uh, where our main text is, verse 5 of chapter 11 says this, By faith Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, let's find out how Enoch pleased God. And so go back to Genesis 5. It's kind of brief, really. But starting at verse 18 of Genesis 5, we read this. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, we read here that Enoch walked with God. But do we know why God was pleased with Enoch? We don't see that in Genesis. You have to go to Jude to see why God was pleased with Enoch. And so in Jude, starting at verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. And now he's speaking of these spots in your love feasts. These are evil men he's speaking of. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Enoch was a prophet. Enoch was a preacher. And he was preaching to those that were doomed to die in the flood of Noah. And so that is what pleased God. He was a preacher, and he was basically carrying God's word and his word of justice and, and a judgment out to these many people that he was speaking to. So this is, God is pleased by what he does for us in these things. And another thing that God is pleased by is in Philippians 2, and this one uh, is one of the ones that Gary read. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Again, his good pleasure. And it is his work he begins in us. It is his work he continues in us. And so 
The Lord takes pleasure in all these things. I want to share one more verse, and then we'll actually build on it, because there are so many verses I could just keep skipping around. But this is Psalm 147. Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, those who hope in his mercy. Now, Psalms is filled with things like this. I mean, these words, fear of the Lord and hope in his mercy, is quite common. But I tell you, I have never uh, had it made more live more living to me than when I read what Piper had to say about it in this book, The Pleasures of God. And I want to read a couple excerpts from here. Now this, he begins with an image. Suppose you were exploring an unknown glacier in the north of Greenland in the dead of winter. In other words, cold. You, you young people might not know yet, but Greenland was named Greenland to trick people. Iceland was the nice place And the Vikings named it Iceland to keep the bad people away, and the bad people were supposed to go to Greenland. It's just kind of an ironic twist on why those two islands are named what they are. But so Greenland is not green. It's white. And Iceland is pretty green. Suppose you were exploring an unknown glacier in the north of Greenland in the dead of winter. Just as you reach a sheer cliff wall with a spectacular view of miles and miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow, a terrible storm breaks. The wind is so strong that the fear rises in your heart that it might blow you off the cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. Here you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the store rages on, and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. Now, I love storms. I know some people are afraid of them. But this morning when I look out and I see the snow blowing sideways, and it's just beautiful. It is amazing that God does these things. When when the rainstorms will come here in a few weeks and we're just being drenched and my backyard is a lake, I just really like it. It just shows the power of God at work in our world. So now this is the picture that he's given you. You have walked up to the edge of this precipice And then the storm is huge. You can see this panorama of storm, and yet you're not exposed. You have been hidden in this little cleft. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right from the middle of it. And in that place of refuge, we say, this is amazing. This is incredible. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. And so we get an idea of how we feel both hope and fear at the same time. Hope turns fear into a trembling and peaceful wonder. And fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. The terrors of God make the pleasures of his people intense. Our fear reflects the greatness of his power, and our hope reflects the bounty of his grace. God delights in those responses which mirror 
his magnificence. So see, that is what the fear of God is all about. It is awesomeness. It is not fear in that we are trembling, that we feel we're about to get smacked down. No, it's fear in looking at the awesome splendor of God and yet feeling safe in the knowledge that he knows we're here, that he knows we're watching, that he knows we are experiencing this. And it's for his glory that he reveals all this to us. It makes us understand more and more clearly just how powerful our God is. From day to day, we forget. We grow desensitized to this powerful God. Our God is awesome in power, majestic in glory. Yet he takes pleasure in protecting us. And it could be in very small ways. He loves being intimate with us. And that's what I talked about last week, that knowledge of God. Now, too often, and this is the rookie mistake that we Christians make all through our lives, too often we are so intent on wanting to impress God that we don't realize that the whole point of our existence is to be impressed by Him. So even when we're battling the sins in our lives, we forget that it is God that we are to call upon to slay the demons of sin in our lives. The more we try to do it ourselves, the more we will fail. The more you begin trying to count the ways in which you are failing God, the more distant you will grow from Him. God takes pleasure in you. And he will take more pleasure in you the greater you rely upon him, the greater you go to him in your weakness. But yet we want to approach God in a position of strength. It's just a part of our fallen nature. We don't want to be broken. We don't want to be humbled. We want to serve God from what we consider strength. Yet we will never have the strength to make that feel right. You will on this earth always be weak, always be needy. The more holy you become, the more needy you will feel. Because only as you're getting holy are you realizing that it is God that is pouring his grace into your life and his mercy into your life that makes us tolerable to one another. Knowing God, pleasing God, serving God. Much of our supposed service to God is probably time wasted. That's why I'm so thankful that this three-part kind of evolved into a series and serving is the last one. Because knowing God is most important. Pleasing God is next most important. And then serving God is really a means to these two ends. We serve God to touch his heart. We serve God because that's why he made us. We're being obedient servants. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not from faith is sin. Think of what I've described now. Knowing God, pleasing God, serving God as a bullseye. You've got knowing God right here in the center of the bullseye. And wrapped around that, you have pleasing God. And wrapped around that, you have serving God. I believe 
Most Christians shoot for the third ring. We foolishly believe that it is through serving God that we will draw more closely to him. And that's not true. You must serve God. He's made you for that purpose. But you can be so close to God, so intimate with God. And too often, our service to God distances us because it makes us proud. It makes us feel worthy of being near God. And that is to totally miss the point. You got to shoot for the bullseye, knowing God. Your, all of your service will fall out of knowing God and wanting to please God. All of it will be natural. You won't have anybody arm-twisting you into doing something for the church. You will be entirely guilt-free if you tell someone, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Why? Because your heart is right. You're going for knowing God. You're going for pleasing God. And you know where your service realm lies. You're comfortable with that. You're comfortable with who you are before God. And so you're not prey to then the people in the church that are always trying to get other people to do things. Now, those are good things. We want them done. But we want them to be done with the right motive by people that are enjoying that act of service. And so that's why I, I feel Dominion is doing it right. It's trying to have all of the services fall out naturally. We don't want to make anything that is in itself some drudgery that we drag people to. Here, do this. Here, do that. We need somebody to do it. You know, I'm going to guilt you into it. No, no. All of the service that we're doing should come from our heart. If it's not, it is of sin, and it is absolutely meaningless. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And so whatever you're doing to serving, if it's out of some guilt, it's sin. So don't do it. You must get right with God. Get right with God, and then all of these services will fall out. You will want to serve people. It will be your heart's desire to touch God. Uh, two weeks ago, in the uh, leading of the worship, I quoted this as the uh, verse of invocation, and it was uh, Psalm 46.10, and it is, Be still and know that I am God. We must practice this. And I'm not saying once a week or once a month. I'm saying many, many times a day. Until you know God, until you're intimate with God, you must be still and recognize his presence in your life. I've asked a few people here at times over the last years whether they have ever been hugged by God. Of course, I have to explain that. But to me, a hug from God it can be so subtle, so insignificant that most people would regard it as silly if you tried to share it with them. And I remember my first one. I'm not even going to share it with you because it's precious to me, and I think it might be vulgar to you. Uh, but it was, I was a young believer, and I was, I was in my barracks, and there's just something that God did to just make me know, hey, Rod, I'm here, and I know what you're going through. It was such a tremendous boon to me, but it was so trivial. And yet, I had one occur Friday night. 
I went to the video store, and I, we have the, and what's funny about this, too, is we have the video, O Brother, Where Art Thou? But I don't know where it is. I believe I gave it to my daughter. I'm not sure, but I know we have it or had it. I can't find it. So I go to the video store. I want to watch this. I think it's important. So I go there, and I go to the dollar favorites or whatever, and it's not there. I see the case, no video. I'm like, boy, this doesn't seem right. I know I need to see that video. So I walk away, not knowing what to do, because I'm just lost. So I get a row away, and, and I think, what is the likelihood that a movie 13 years old was rented by somebody on the night I want to watch it. And I thought to myself, I wonder if it's actually here. It's just lost, like mine at home. So I go to the rack, and I think, okay, if it's likely to get lost, it's likely to be right next by, the very next disc. I pick up the disc, Nutty Professor, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? God hugged me. Those are hidden throughout our lives, but are we aware of them? Are we looking for them? Are we thanking God when we get them? Because if you get a hug, hug back. That's what hugs are wonderful about, right? I mean, I'm not going to come up to you and hug you, and you're just going to stand there. You know, Gil and I have hugged so much that we've kissed at times here, accidentally, but... It was wonderful. We still hug. We take that chance. We're comfortable in our masculinity. I even wear pink shirts sometimes. But so I encourage you to seek these hugs from God. Look for them. If you can tell me you've never felt a hug from God, then I think you're not really looking to the bullseye. You're not looking to know God. Now, I'm admitting to you, though, that there are long periods of my life where I've gone without seeking God, as we know we should. We can all do that. Even though we're Christians, we can go through the motions. And that's not good enough. God wants you to do more. He wants you to experience far more joy than you may be experiencing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the world that we live in, for the many gifts that you have given us. And yet... All of it pales in comparison to the gift of yourself. And not just in the sacrifice of Christ, but in the relations that we can have with you here on this earth as a foretaste of heaven. We do not avail ourselves of your presence as we ought. And so for that, Father, we ask your forgiveness. We pray that you would enter into our hearts, enter into our lives. And yet we know, Father, that you wait 
for us to seek you, to seek you with all of our heart. And you do not give out these hugs to people that do not appreciate them. And so we pray, Lord, that we would truly appreciate who you are, what you have done, how much pleasure you get out of being our God, out of doing all of these many things that we cannot do ourselves. So we ask you, Father, to make us truly thankful, to make us thankful for what we have and to make us thankful for who you are. Draw us close to yourself, Lord, we pray. And we ask you now to, I ask you to uh, please uh, open up the minds and hearts and lives of the people here that are hearing this message that do want a deeper relationship with you. I pray, Father, that before we get to serving next week especially, that they would think through and meditate through some of this about knowing you and wanting to please you because the serving is empty apart from these two. So we pray, Lord, that you would be with us in the week ahead, that you would draw us close to yourself. We give you thanks for who you are and for what you have done in our world. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.